So we'll look at Matthew 17 this morning and start in verse 14 and go down through the end of the chapter. And of course, we just saw last week uh, that great passage of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And there's so much to glean from that. Uh, we never could possibly glean it all in one, uh, in one sermon, um, but I trust that we got something from it. And uh, it leads us perfectly in the narrative into our passage today. I want to start by sharing a quote that I read this week in my study. Um, there's much to do with faith in this passage before us, which is why I've titled the sermon today, Lessons of Faith. And uh, C.H. Spurgeon said this, My faith rests not in what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is doing for me. I thought that was fitting for the portion that we've been studying in Matthew uh, because we've learned an awful lot over the last couple of weeks about who Christ is. From Peter's great confession in Matthew 16 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to the almost unimaginable and glorious scene on the Mount of Transfiguration where the, the pre-existent glory, so to speak, as the second person of the Godhead shown through Jesus Christ in glistening light. And it overshadowed even the appearance of Moses and Elijah who were there with him. And we learned the purpose, or at least one of the main purposes of that appearance, which was a lesson for Peter, James, and John to learn to listen. That's what the voice from heaven, the Father said. After all that they had experienced, he said, listen to him. And by extension, that is a lesson to us as well, to listen to the Son of God, to listen to the Word of God. We've seen also much about what Christ has done. Uh, we've seen his teaching, of course. We've seen uh, his multitude of miracles. We've seen him dealing on a personal level with his disciples, sometimes, like we'll see today, when they're a little bit dense, and we're sometimes a little bit dense. Um, We've seen all these things, and just up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we have every reason to adore and to cherish the Lord Jesus. But we've also seen what he said he will do, and that is to go to Jerusalem, to be beaten and battered, and to be crucified, and then to rise on the third day. And that seems to be the thing right now it, that the disciples do not have a good grasp on. Uh, it bewilders them. You see, we look backward with the fullness of the resurrection and all of the explanations given by the apostles. But for them, it was still a matter of, of faith to look forward and wonder what exactly does this mean? Even though they had pieces of the puzzle, those blank spots really threw them for a loop. Jesus spent a lot of time teaching, instruction, uh, a lot of time with patience, of shepherding. We'll see in Matthew, before we're done with it, that he has to repeat that statement, that the Son of Man is going to be killed and crucified and on the third day rise again. He's going to repeat that uh, quite a few times, shepherding, patience, over and over and over again. And for us, we'll see it's no different. It's the Lord's teaching, his instruction, his shepherding, his patience, his long-suffering. 
his interceding for us in prayer, his sustaining us, his working all things for his glory and our good. The, the list goes on and on. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. All that to say, again, faith, not in us, but in who Christ is in what he has done and what he is doing. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. There's that death to self that we saw a couple chapters ago. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now again, all this talk about faith and what Christ has done is because we're about to see lessons in faith in this chapter. Uh, it seems often, as we think back through the Gospel of Matthew, it seems often that when Jesus commends somebody, somebody who's come to him for healing or somebody he's dealing with, it's often their faith that he commends them for. For instance, in Matthew uh, 8, verse 10, we see when Jesus heard this, uh, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Another chapter later, another individual, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Uh, same chapter, a little later, he then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And a little bit more recently, Matthew 15, 28, uh, you remember the, the, uh, the woman that Jesus dealt with and he said, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. In all of those examples, the individuals were blessed greatly by Jesus purely on the basis of their faith. Some of those were even Gentiles. And he commends them for their faith. But as we'll see in this passage, sometimes the opposite is true also. When Jesus rebukes someone, often it is for a lack of faith. One example Matthew 8, 26, uh, he said to them, this is the disciples in a boat uh, in the storm. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and sea, and there was a great calm. So we want to see lessons in faithfulness in this passage today. And uh, before we go any further, let's just read. We'll start again in Matthew 17, verse 14. Encourage you to turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find it in the pew Bible in front of you. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, kneeling before him, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. We'll stop there for now. The first thing we'll see in this portion is lessons 
in faith, yes, but really lessons in faithful or faithlessness. Have you ever watched the movie where the, the scenes are going by and, and there are really two sort of storylines going on that are eventually going to converge and play into each other? And in order to fully develop the plot line, uh, the movie cuts from one intense scene to another, which may be not so tense or it may even seem irrelevant, but it's sort of that meanwhile episode. And that's kind of what is happening here. Peter, James, John have been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while they were up there in this glorious experience, apparently this event that the man we find in our passage has taken place. They came back down the mountain to the crowds and a man came kneeling before him. Lord, uh, I've brought my son. He has epilepsy. He has a demon. Uh, he's in terrible shape. I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. Now, place yourself in the emotion of that scene for a minute and, and think about it, all that has just happened, what they're coming back into. And then I wanna ask you to think along these terms. Have you ever come back from a time of rest or a time of vacation to a big mess or a big problem? Lizzie and I had an experience when we were in college uh, our junior year, my junior year in college that summer, uh, we were asked to travel as sort of student representatives uh, for the college. So we said yes, and we did so. And we had an apartment there in Knoxville, and uh, we decided, well, we'll be back in the fall. So we'll just keep the apartment, and we'll sort of tidy things up, put it away. There won't be any problem. Um, so we left about the second week of May, and we weren't scheduled to be back until about the 4th of July. And as young individuals, and I'm speaking of myself as a young, sort of dense young man, Lizzie said to me before we left, she's like, she said, there's all this frozen chicken in the freezer. She's like, do you think that we should maybe give this to someone or do something with it? And I said, no, it'll be fine. It's in the freezer. We're only going to be gone for like six weeks. Well, those words came back to echo and haunt me for quite some time uh, because we came back around the 4th of July and we came and unlocked our apartment door and instantly we were met with a very unpleasant smell. And uh, also noticed, hey, the lights don't turn on. What's going on here? Well, sometime while we were gone, the, the meter socket on the side of our apartment had essentially fried and had shut electricity off to our apartment for who knows how long. And I'll spare you the details of what it looked like when I opened that freezer door, but we'll just uh, suffice it to say, I, I had to eat my words of, yeah, it'll be fine. It was not fine. Uh, it was a big mess. So we come back, you know, from this really enjoyable time of traveling around to different churches and schools and come back for a few days at home and we're met with this disaster. That's a little bit like I think what Jesus and the other three disciples felt like after the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down the mountain from this glorious retreat. I mean, if there was any glorious retreat that ever happened, it was this one, to spend a night on a mountain with Jesus in his transfigured state, to hear a voice from heaven speak specifically to you. I mean, this would have been incredible. And they come down to the crowds and you've got this poor boy who's convulsing and falling and being thrown around by a demon. You've got disciples who have failed to do what Jesus had previously given them the ability to do. You've got this father who's probably beside himself at this point. And Mark, we're not in Mark, but he gives us the added details that there were a bunch of scribes around. And for some reason, they were arguing with the disciples. There's not a whole lot of positivity going on in this situation when Jesus 
and Peter, James, and John come back. What a mess. And perhaps for the first real time that we've seen, at least in Matthew, we see a holy frustration in Jesus that comes out in a powerful statement. He answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I'm thinking of examples in my life where my dad said things like that to me. Uh, how many times am I going to tell you this? And uh, maybe I've said that now to my own children too. But in a, in a loving, in a, a fatherly almost, in a, in a nurturing but yet intense way, Jesus says, how long is it going to be like this? How long do I have to bear with this? Now, the immediate question that comes to mind is, is who exactly is Jesus rebuking here? Because in this text, the only interaction he's had so far is with the father of that boy who has epilepsy, who has a demon that gives him seizures. Is he rebuking the father? Of course, we also know there's a crowd around. We know the other nine disciples are there. From Mark, again, we know there are a group of scribes there. Who is he rebuking? Well, I think... While most of his rebuke probably falls on his disciples, those who out of anybody there should have known best, but ripples of it certainly reach out to everyone within earshot. The problem in general is faithlessness. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That is the rebuke. And in one way or another, it probably hit everybody that was in, within earshot. He says, faithless and twisted, or, or faithless and perverse. That is, they either did not have faith, or their faith was misplaced. Uh, the word for perverse or twisted means uh, unsound mentally or even emotionally. Uh, it's a generation that did not have faith in God, specifically in Jesus the Messiah, and whatever faith they did have was often driven by their whims. It was unsound. It was unfounded. And we might be tempted to take the stand sort of behind Jesus and join in the accusation and say, yes, Lord, you tell them. But how often in our lives would Jesus, if he were here in person, cry out in frustration over us? and say something like this, oh, foolish Christian, how many times do I have to tell you this? It's so simple. How, how do you not get it? All I've ever asked you to do is trust me and follow me, yet time and time again you fail. After all, what was the lesson we learned from the transfiguration? It was, it was to listen, right? Listen to the Son of God. Don't listen to the distractions and the ideas that you might have and, and uh, these things that you can conjure up, your own imaginations. No, listen to the Lord. Now, specifically regarding this boy with a demon, if you remember back in Matthew 10, Jesus had already commissioned his 
12 disciples to go out in their own preaching and teaching and healing ministry. And he sent them out with words of preparation. He sent them out with words of warning, but he sent them out with a call to persevere and to carry on and to not fear. And they went out. We're not told a lot about that excursion, but seemingly they went out and did what Jesus told them. So they'd already been prepared in some sense to do what this man had asked them. We could probably surmise that this is something that the disciples should have been able to, through the power of God and through faith, accomplish. But they didn't, and they couldn't. There are many things that we are not accountable to in life. There are many things that we might be concerned about. We might say, yes, that needs attention, but we're far enough removed from the situation where we can't do anything about it. But then there are other times when we're faced with specific things in life, which the Lord calls us to do. And oftentimes we fail. We're not accountable for everything else around us that we have no influence over. But when there is something that the Lord has both called and equipped us to do, and yet we still fail, then this sort of rebuke hits us as well. Jesus points to their faithlessness. Jesus, of course, we read, rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was instantly healed. And that's all the details Matthew gives about that, because often, as we've seen, Matthew wants us to learn the lesson about the miracle, not just about the miracle itself. And then the disciples came to Jesus again and asked, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, because of your little faith. Now, in Jesus' frustration, this is maybe a side note, but in Jesus' frustration, he heals the boy and casts out the demon. How much does that differ from us in our frustration? Uh, how many times would we just store, storm off or ignore someone or, or downplay the person or, or react angrily? But Jesus shows mercy to the faithless, even in the midst of his frustration. It's, that's why it's holy frustration, not simply fleshly frustration. But anyways, beyond that, he not only heals the boy, but he teaches a lesson about faith. Why couldn't we cast it out? The disciples said, Jesus said, because of your little faith. Then he says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, and to paraphrase, you can do anything. You can do anything. Do you remember the parable of the mustard seed? We studied that a few months ago. Mustard seed was one of the tiniest seeds known to man, maybe even the tiniest that some of them knew. And it started small, but branched into a, a large tree, big enough for birds to make their nests in. So how small was the disciples' faith if it was smaller than the tiniest mustard seed? Because he said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could do that. You could do anything. Well, perhaps the problem was not the size or the amount of their faith, but maybe what kind of faith it was. One thing we could say about it, it was limited faith, limited. Uh, that's one of the implications of the word little. Jesus says, because of your little faith. 
It does speak to size, but it also speaks of clear limits. It's this size, so it cannot do anything else. There was a cap, for whatever reason, on the disciples' faith. They clearly did not have faith that the Lord could empower them to heal this boy, to cast out the demon. They tried, but it apparently was in their own efforts, and they failed. Their faith was limited. We might also say their faith could have been stagnant. It it wasn't growing. Uh, From what they had just learned about Jesus, when it was revealed to them that he was the Christ, the Son of God, to now, their faith has not seemed to grow, but rather even to shrink back some. Was it their concern over his death? Were they reverting back to their own strength, trying to prove to themselves that they could do it without him? Did they take on an an independent nature and think, we've got to be strong enough by now? Oh, dear Christian, we have to learn that we are never strong enough to exercise anything in our lives without faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, We've never walked the walk of faith uh, far enough to where we can now step out on our own ability and be sufficient. We've never reached the point where we are grown up enough or or mature enough in our faith that we somehow become independent of the Lord, our source of strength. If you think about it a bit, faith like a mustard seed does not simply denote size, but it denotes the potential of life and growth. A mustard seed is small, but the results are big because it's growing and it's alive. And so it is with true faith. It is a living faith, a growing faith. It's reaching into what Christ has called and promised, not with an eye of of understanding, but with an eye of hope. As Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mustard seed faith may be small, but it extends into the far reaches of Christ's power and his sovereignty. For faith latches on firmly to him, not resting on our own ability or knowledge or even how much we've grown, but it rests upon our Lord. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, be moved from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. To move mountains was a common Hebrew expression of the power of God. In other words, with a faith like a grain of mustard seed, the power of God is what's at play here. Now, often this verse is taken and twisted and used to say that you can do anything imaginable if you just have enough faith, or it's used to beat people down. For instance, they try to accomplish something unthinkable, or they they pray for a miracle, or they try to heal someone, and they they fail to do it, and somebody might say, well, you, you just didn't have enough faith. But we have to remember this is in the context of something that Jesus had actually called the disciples to do. They weren't just going out trying to impress people. Uh, Living and growing faith enables us to do what Christ calls us to do. Now, sometimes that includes huge things, monumental tasks, but oftentimes it includes the simple day-to-day things as well. 
Christ may call someone to be a missionary, to go across uh, cultural barriers and across the ocean to take the gospel to unreached peoples. But he might also call them to be a faithful spouse and a faithful parent. All of this requires faith. Christ may call someone to start an orphanage and they have a, a, a love and a desire to help these little children, but he might also call them to love their enemies. Both require faith. Christ may call you to stand up against some great moral evil in the world, like abortion or the destruction of marriage, but he has also called you to bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters. In your mind, one may seem bigger, but they both require the same kind of faith. Maybe Christ will call you to move a mountain, so to speak. But if we have no faith in the small things, will we truly believe for the mountainous things? It's not the size or even the amount of our faith. Christ rewards even the littlest faith when it is true, growing, active, living faith. Faith that reaches not into the depths of our own resources, but in the depths of who Christ is, his power. Well, we go on. Verse 22 and 23, we see a lesson in faithful reminding. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is a lesson that would continue to cause a great deal of distress, especially for Peter, as we've already seen when he rebuked Jesus last time he told them this. And why is this inserted here? Why does Matthew give us this? Well, one, he's told us in Matthew 16 that Jesus had begun to teach this which indicates he's going to repeat it. And we see it here repeated for the first time. It's going to take them a while to get it. But also, as Jesus had just given them a lesson on faith, it's probably safe to assume that this might be the biggest sticking point or trouble area in the disciples' faith. And it will continue to be a sticking point, a pill that's hard to swallow. But Christ will continue to reassure them, to remind them, to hammer the point down that this is true. This is part of the plan. And that repetition is all part of our learning. So often things have to be hammered down. We have to be reminded. Thinking back to Deuteronomy 6, the, the Shema, uh, what was repeated every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them. Listen, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. That wasn't just poetic imagery. 
the Lord's people actually did these things because it was meant not just as a symbol, but as a reminder, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Remind them every day when they get up, when they lay down, when they're walking, when they're laying down, write them on your face, write them on your hand, write them on your door so you see it every time you walk by. We need continual reminder of what the Lord has said. It's no wonder why uh, the image of sheep is what is used for followers of the Lord, because we do not get it once and for all the first time we hear it. We must be reminded. The disciples had to be reminded of this promise of Jesus' death, that it was part of the plan. Now, why do we need reminding? There's lots of reasons. One, simply ignorance. We just don't know. We've, we've missed something. We've overlooked it. We haven't learned it yet, so we have to be told. Another would be forgetfulness. In our busyness, in our distraction, in our scattered minds, we have, we're prone to forget. Another would be apathy. We just don't care. We know something is important or true, but we've taken the position of apathy against it. It may not even be an active thing. It's just we've shut our minds to it. Another would be willful neglect. We know the importance and we're even fighting the importance because the Holy Spirit is convicting us of something and we're fighting against it in our flesh. And we need to be reminded yet again. Or maybe what the disciples were facing, maybe some of all of this, but mostly I think it was fear. They knew the words of Jesus. They probably, in a mental sense, believed, okay, he hasn't led us astray now. So if he's telling us he's going to die, he's probably right. They probably believed him in a mental sense, but their fear caused them to tremble at it, to not accept it. You may find yourself in one or all of those areas when it comes to the Lord's word, his commands, his teaching. And in those times, we have to remember Proverbs 3, which tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. We have to come to terms with the fact that we are limited and even oftentimes mistaken in our thinking, and we have to allow our minds to be constantly renewed by the word of Christ. We will all face these concerns, doubt, fear, ignorance, apathy, willful disregard, all of them. And when we do, there is our Lord, who just like he has done with the disciples, firmly but lovingly shows us again and again, reminding us through his word, building our faith in his never changing ways. Faithful reminders. This is why it's so critical that we allow ourselves to be enriched with the scriptures all the time. Uh, dare I say, it is not enough if we only open the Bible here on Sunday morning. You have it as a resource, as a life-giving uh, fountain. Open it and read it. Heed it. Listen to it. 
You say, oh, I've read it through. I know what it says. Have you mastered it yet? Read it again. And once you've read it again, read it again. Meditate on it. Like the in Psalm 1, the man who meditates, he hungers and thirsts for it. And be reminded yet again by the Lord of what he's called us to and what he's said. Well, finally, the chapter winds out with a lesson in faithful stewardship. And uh, hold on to that term for a second because it's not necessarily using it in the standard way. Let's read verse 24 and following. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast the hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer to include this little story. It's kind of a curious one. Uh, in a fleshly standpoint, I am thinking, Matthew, did you just include this because it talked about taxes and you were a tax collector? And uh, that, there may be some truth to that. The Lord could have used that. But uh, nevertheless, we believe, of course, it's true. And uh, I said this is a lesson in faithful stewardship. And I mean that as sort of a play on ideas, because if we take this as a miracle, this is the only miracle that we're, we read of in the scripture that has anything to do with money. But the teaching is not about money, per se. The lesson has more to do with stewarding our opportunities, our influence, our relationships. Uh, the two drachma tax or the, the, the stator tax was a tax that was originated in Exodus 30. And you can read there uh, on your own time if you'd like to. But Moses was about to take a census of the people and every man who was numbered in that census was called to give a half shekel offering for the tabernacle. And that tradition was carried on, even to Jesus' day. But there were differences in opinion about it. Imagine that. There's a difference in opinion on taxes. Uh, we're not living in new days. But anyways, um, according to some rabbis, you simply had to give this tax one time in your life when you became a man, and then that settled it. That, was, that fulfilled the commandment. Some taught, though, that you had to give it every year. And many believed that and did that. Some taught that you didn't have to give it at all, that this was just for the time of the Exodus, and therefore it was null and void. And these were all varying interpretations by different teachers. And it should also be noted that those teachers, the rabbis, they were exempted from the tax in all those cases, along with the priests of the temple. So it was a disputed matter to begin with. But some were very religious about it. And we see here this collector of the tax comes to Peter, apparently seeing him as the, the leader of the group, but not the real leader. He wanted to get as close to the front of the line as possible without stepping right out in front of Jesus. But he asked Peter, does, does your rabbi not pay the tax? 
Now, why did he ask him that? We don't know. We aren't given the details. Maybe, uh, maybe they walked by the tax booth where it was to be paid and Jesus just ignored them. Or uh, maybe he had already paid it or he believed it wasn't, wasn't uh, applicable to him or whatever it might have been. There were many reasons why Jesus might not have paid the tax. But when Peter was asked this, maybe Peter felt the need to defend him. And he said, yes, which takes to mean, yes, of, of course he pays the tax. And we can't extrapolate from the details that we don't have. But what we do know is what Jesus taught Peter. Here again is an example where Peter opens his mouth and he gets a lesson from Jesus because of it. And it's very helpful for us. Verse 25, Peter said yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So Jesus is setting up an illustration in Peter's mind. Peter, do, do the children of kings pay taxes that the king requires? And of course, the answer would be, would be no. Do they, pay it from, do they get it from their sons or from others? And when Peter said from others, which is apparently the right answer, Jesus said, then the sons are free. In other words, Jesus is saying that he truly is exempt from this temple tax. After all, Peter, don't you remember? You said with your own mouth that I'm the son of God, the one who the temple is for. Uh, as, as the God man himself, does Jesus need to pay the tax to support his own worship? And that would have been the biggest reason why he was exempt, even if you don't include all the other ones, like uh, he was one of the rabbis or he didn't believe it was a, needed to be do, done every year, any of those. There were many reasons why he might not have had to do this. But what is the lesson here? Well, verse 27 starts with, however, or but, as not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast the hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and pay the tax. Give it to them for me and yourself. Now we can imagine, we can assume maybe that Peter did go out and do this. We aren't told the rest of the story, story so to speak. But the point of the story, I believe, is this. I am free from this. But... The sons are free. However, this is a, where the lesson of faithful stewardship comes in. Because as believers, we have a great amount of freedom, a great amount of, of liberty. We are free to do many things. But there are times when we lay down that freedom for the sake of something else and something better. And in this case, the something else was to not offend the Jews who believed that that tax was relevant. And to not offend is even a stronger term. This doesn't mean to just simply upset them. It means to cause them to stumble which sometimes means to cause someone to sin, to become a temptation for them, or at least to trip them up, to put them off edge, to place such an unnecessary burden in front of them that it throws them for a loop, it frustrates them, it 
burdens them with unnecessary confusion. Jesus says, I'm free from this, but there's something else I value more than my exemption to this tax. Dennis read from 1 Corinthians 9 uh, between the songs. I want to read a portion of that again. Paul there, which I be- who I believe probably learned this principle from Jesus in his teachings, said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though not being under myself under the law. In other words, I'm, I don't have to do that that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, the fulfillment that Christ has given, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all, listen, for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's saying the same thing. Uh, I'm free, but for the sake of the gospel, I will willingly surrender some of my freedom. I'm free, but for the sake of the kingdom, I will willingly lay down some of my liberty. For uh, I'm free, but for the sake of the word, I will steward my relationships in such a way that I don't cause a weaker brother to stumble and fall. Back it up one chapter, and again, you can read this on your own time, but in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul illustrates this very thing. In Corinth, in a culture where many of them were saved out of idol worship, some of them could never get past the association of uh, the meat offered to idols that was sold for regular use. It was common to purchase and eat it. And a lot of the Christians had no trouble with that because they said, These are fake idols anyway. There's no spiritual power in this meat. In fact, it's probably cheaper than the other meat. So I'm getting a good deal. I'm saving money here. I'm going to eat it. And it wasn't a sin. It was fine. But others who were weak in their faith, still learning and growing, they wanted nothing to do with it because perhaps they were tempted to go back into their former ways. Or perhaps they hadn't learned fully that those idols were dead and lifeless. But either way, Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 8, for their sake, I will not eat at all. I will give up my freedom. Paul didn't think the idols were real. He didn't think it was sin to eat that meat. He didn't think there was any mystical power in it. But if his disregard for his brother's struggle caused him to stumble, Paul said, I'll give it up. I'll never eat that meat for his sake. We do this as well. For instance, if, if a brother you know uh, struggled with or still does struggle with alcoholism and you believe that it's, it's your freedom, your liberty to have a drink, a glass of wine or something, and the scripture doesn't say you can't, yet for the sake of your brother, you're probably not going to pour him a glass of wine, are you? If a brother or sister comes out of a lifestyle where immorality runs rampant and they're trying with all their might to avoid that for the sake of Christ, we may be able to tolerate 
a movie or some kind of entertainment that makes light of those things. And we might do it without sin because we're truly not tempted by it. But would we exercise that right with our brother and possibly destroy his progress in those areas? In the same way, Jesus says, Peter, I don't have to pay this tax. I'm the son of God. And we could extrapolate backwards where Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the temple. I don't have to pay the tax. But in order to not offend, to not cause this person to stumble, he said, Peter, let's pay the tax, even if I have to do a miracle to afford it. This is a statement about Christ's identity. For instance, he is the son of God. He is exempt from the tax. God doesn't have to pay the temple tax. But it's also a picture of his identity as one who's willing to lay down his life. Which goes right back to how he told them, now for the second time, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. I find myself so often like Peter. Lord, I don't like this. I I shouldn't have to deal with this. I have freedom from this. And I hear Jesus saying, not in audible words, but through his word. Yes, but. For the sake of something greater, you can lay this down. And I see the example of him actually laying down not just his freedom to not pay the tax, but I see him laying down his very life for my sake, for your sake. And as our Redeemer and example, we can say through his strength and through faith, we can even do this. Christ may call you to give up something, something that may even seem good, something that may seem valuable, something that's not even sinful. It's just necessary to give up for the sake of his calling. And that might seem like a mountain or a mountain moving experience. But to have a faith, a living faith, with a grain of mustard seed, he will empower you to do it. He will give you the grace. And we can say with Paul, as he did in Galatians, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.